Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 42. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I came to New York City for the first few days of my honeymoon in 2004. It was uh, like a year before we we actually moved here. And we stayed in the Sheraton in Times Square because we didn't live here yet. And we, a family member had some points and it was one of those wild moments in life where all these things are converging. I was in this, this great city, um, you know, I was one day married, I was surrounded by the madness of Times Square. It felt like we kind of had our whole lives in front of us. And I'll never forget, the cab you know, pulls up and drops us off in front of the hotel. I'd never really checked into a place that was that, that nice um, on my own. And so I didn't know exactly what to expect. So I didn't think it was, it was weird or off that they said, okay, just leave your bags here and the bellman will be, bring them up. I was like, okay, that's just how you do it in, in a fancier hotel. So uh, we get up to the room. And I'm checking things out. I kind of got my face pressed against the glass, uh, looking out at the city. And the bellman eventually comes and knocks on the door. 
Allison goes to answer the door and a, a moment later, I hear her trying to slam the door on the luggage cart and she's screaming, no, no way. Um, so I was confused, a little bit alarmed, and I spin around to see what's happening, and I see the bellman is sort of sliding through uh, the, the crack where she's trying to shut the door on the cart. And, um, you know, I'm just getting my head around what to do. Am I supposed to yell at this guy? Am I supposed to, you know, run over there and try to force him out of the room? And all of a sudden he looks up and I realize it's my dad. And this is you know, the second day of my honeymoon and he's dressed in a bellman outfit. Um, and all of a sudden he says, welcome to New York. No need for a tip. Uh, in fact, I've got one for you and pulls out all this cash and puts it in our hand and then sort of promptly turns around and, 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 and leaves. And we're sit sitting there sort of dumbfounded, laughing, looking at this money saying, oh my gosh, what, you know, what, what just happened? Um, seeing my dad on our honeymoon certainly wasn't something that I, that I had planned or even wanted, but uh, yeah, there we were. We were cracking up and thinking, you know, if you have to see, you know, one of your parents on, on your honeymoon, maybe this is one of the better ways. Uh, he ended up having to be in New York City for, for business at the, at the same time. And it was very cool if we didn't want to see him again. Um, but once we'd been there for a few days, we actually decided we would. So we saw one of the last nights we were here, we saw Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway and then went down and met my dad for a meal at Balthazar in Soho. And I didn't know it. But it was the, you know, one of the last meals that I would ever have with my dad. Definitely the last meal I ever had in New York with him. And also one of the last times I was going to see him before, before he passed. And I think about that experience, um, you know, from time to time. I walked past Balthazar in, in Soho last week and, and I thought of it. And, and the whole thing now has these layers um, that the, the younger me couldn't have possibly, you know, known or anticipated. But, um, you know, how important that time was, I think, back to it and, and, and coming to love this city. And, and, you know, obviously it's a very different experience coming here on your honeymoon with, you know, family members giving you money than actually living here. But, you know, something about New York was beginning to capture my heart. And I was starting this new life with, with Allison and we felt like it was all sort of laying out in front of us. And, and I think about my dad, like, you know, hiding in the lobby and, and holding up, he told us he held up a newspaper when we came in, you know, like a movie or something and bribing the bellman. And then I think about sitting there with him at Balthazar and, and that, that meal to me represents, you know, kind of a lot of what life is like where there's these incredible highs and, you know, also the, the real life, the grief and the lows and, and wrestling with death and not knowing how significant moments are or how significant they're going to be until later. When I read the story of the Last Supper and these last moments with Jesus' disciples and, and all the significance that's found in them, it, it, it reminds me that, that you know, sometimes as we're passing through a moment, we can't anticipate how significant uh, it is going to be for the rest of our lives. In my own story, when I fast forward 17 years, right, four kids of my own later, um, I was having a very frustrating evening the other night. And uh, it was one of those days where, um, you know, we're, we're, we're back in another stressful moment with uncertainty about, about COVID and this Delta variant, but also all the other regular things of life and 
Um, it was one of those days where things were just piling up and I, and I kind of had enough and I had to get out of my apartment and go for a walk. And, and you know, I want to be honest, it wasn't my most mature moment. I was basically like, I'm out of here. I need a reset. And I just left and I'm kind of walking around the neighborhood. And at first I was just frustrated and venting in my head. And eventually I like, you know, sort of remember like, oh, I can pray. And so I start to sort of vent my prayers to God. I'm on my own. I get I get a little bit of food. I start to feel I start to feel a little bit better, but I was just praying really, you know, sort of these like visceral sentence prayers to God. What am I supposed to be doing? Why is this happening? What's going on? I don't know if you you know that experience of praying in a very frustrated state, but towards the end of my walk, I was almost back to my house and basically just had been pleading with God for for something. Give me give me a word, give me something to hang on to. And I felt in my spirit three words actually. Uh, gratitude, communion and prayer. And, you know, there's that wrestle in your head. Is this something I'm making up? Is this something God's speaking to me? That was certainly happening. But right away, I felt like there was something right about those three words for where I was and what I was wrestling with. I sent... I really felt like God was was speaking something simple to me, but something that I really need to hear. Like God was saying, I want you to practice being grateful. I want you to practice gratitude for what you do have instead of obsessing about what happens to be missing right now. I want you to remember that the heart of communion is about what I have accomplished, not what you have accomplished or what you want to accomplish. And I don't want you to stop asking for what you need. Remember when I said you have not because you ask not. Look at the prayerlessness in your life over the last couple of days. And it was like just so simple. Gratitude, communion, uh, prayer. It was, it, was, it was very gentle, but also clear instructions. It was like a rebuke for my scarcity mindset and my self-reliance, which was at an all-time high, and my de- defaulting you know, in that self-reliance to doing stuff instead of praying. And these sort of instructions just came, gratitude, communion, prayer. And I'm not saying these, these moments in my life, you know, of, of, of that type of frustration is anywhere close to the intensity of what we find in the story of the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but I feel like God was saying, this is a toolkit and it works. This is a toolkit for life's most challenging moments. And I want you to remember it. And, and I recognize in myself, I want these, um, horizon level answers. I want you to tell me, God, what's going to happen in the next 20 steps. I want to know on a meta level, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And God seems to come back with, hey, here's what you need for this moment. Gratitude, communion, prayer. So I want to try to speak uh, very personally after, after a break from preaching to our church and a, a line of incredible uh, communicators coming in this summer, some from our church, some from outside. It's just been a, a feast of, of uh, good words um, to our community this summer. And, and, and on my first week back, I just want to speak really personally about stuff that, quite honestly, I'm saying to myself as much as I'm saying to you, that I that I need to hear this. This is something that, that God has literally just this past week spoken into my heart as I was, you know, pitching a bit of a fit. But um, I'm still trying to put these simple things in practice, but I take a lot of comfort that these same things show up in these most crucial scenes of Jesus' life and his life with his disciples. Um, 
As you hear the story, right, it's familiar to us, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonizing in prayer there, but I want you to think about what's at stake in these moments. Jesus is is sharing this last Passover meal with his disciples. Um, How they're going to remember this moment, how it's going to impact them for years to come, how they're going to understand what the cross is all about is being shaped in these very moments. Literally, world history is at stake in these very moments. I love how N.T. Wright puts this. What Jesus knows is that this will be a Passover with a difference. This is the time when when he will go as a greater Moses ahead of the 12, ahead of Israel, ahead of the world, into the presence of a greater slave master than Pharaoh, into a terror greater than walking through the sea to lead the world to freedom. The Passover meal with a difference is going to explain more deeply than words ever could do what his action and passion the next day really meant. And more than explaining it, it will enable Jesus' followers from that day to this to make it their own, to draw life and strength from it. If we want to understand and be nourished by what happened on Calvary, this meal is the place to start. That's, what, that's what's at stake in, in, in these you know, few descriptions of, of these moments. The disciples are, are struggling with what's happening. They're trying to make sense of it. We've seen them trying to make sense of it all the way leading up to this moment. And they're still, um, Peter, as their spokesman, sort of makes this clear, they're still very much still banking on their own self-reliance. Peter even swears up and down uh, several times that he's never going to deny Jesus. He says, even if all fall away, I will not. But... We know from the story what, what's coming. A little while later when they get to the garden, they can't even stay awake, right? Famously falling asleep over and over again as Jesus is crying out in agony, sweating drops of blood, asking the Father if there's any other possible way. And then despite it all, at the end, Jesus is praying for help, for relief. And still at the end of the story, or this part of the story, Jesus gets arrested. <laughs> it's, it's part of the plan. So honestly, this isn't even the normal way that, that I, I come to what I'm going to preach in, in a sermon. It's not my normal exegetical method, um, but, but I was very comforted to see these elements that God had reminded me of in, in my own moment of sort of frustration when I was pitching a fit that are present in, these sto- in, in this story. This, these most crucial moments where our redemption is being accomplished, you see gratitude, communion, prayer. I think these are a toolkit, essentials for the most challenging moments of our lives and also for for the rest of them as well. So I want to just show them to you really quickly in this story. So the beginning, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So, this you know, very familiar moment where Jesus gives us this meal of grace, establishes you know, the Lord's Supper communion, and you see gratitude all through it. Um, first of all, the, the, the very you know, sort of celebration that they're in the middle of, preparations had been made um, for them to share in this uninterrupted meal of gratitude. Uh, the, the Passover meal was, was part of God's insistence that his people celebrate in order to remember his kindness, his redemption, his rescue, 
continue in their lives from generation to generation. That, that um, you know, God seems to know this about human nature, that we all have built-in forgetters. And even though, uh, you know, significant, powerful demonstrations of God's love and favor and rescue had taken place in their lives and generations before, that they would need to come back to this over and over again. So preparation had been made for this uninterrupted meal of gratitude. And it's in gratitude and remembrance, so often it's in gratitude and remembrance of what God has done, that we become most prepared to see what God is doing in our lives. This is uh, 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 why gratitude is a powerful lens for our vision in life. And also the accomplishment of what's about to happen is rooted in this Passover story that God's been telling from the beginning. So the whole festival of what they're sharing in is this, is this celebration of the Passover meal. It's a meal of gratitude, but also in the middle of it, woven through, Jesus shows simple gratitude for the provision that they're experiencing. He, he, he stops to thank God for the food. And so massive theological significance, but then also just very quiet, simple thanks. Thank you, God, for this bread. Thank you, God, for this cup. Name, I want to say this to us, church. I'm saying this to my own heart as much as anyone. Naming the simple blessings of our life has tremendous power for our story, tremendous power for our souls. And then they join into gratitude as a group. That little detail that after this meal, they sing a hymn together, right? They, they, they put their words uh, in, in union. They borrow poetry from someone else and they, they, they sing a hymn together. Worshiping together is a way to spur on our gratitude, a way to align our hearts, a way to encourage one another by, by sort of like sharing our faith around the room as we direct our hearts to God. For me, it was so important to see to see these different layers of the gratitude. Gratitude is a planned rhythm of our life. We we make plans to 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 be grateful, but it's also a spontaneous impulse of thanks for the simple blessings of our life. It's also supported by outside sources, by poetry, by by community and rich relationships, but sometimes by by, by singing. At the heart of our faith is recognizing God recognizing God as the source, God as the giver of good gifts. Incredibly practical. Just stopping in the middle of your day and naming 10 things that you're grateful for is a very powerful tool for lifting your heart out of whatever despair or stress or anxiety or fear you might be in the middle of. It's a way to to lift our hearts back up to God, to get our our eyes off of ourselves for just a few moments. If you're overwhelmed, if you're storming out of your house in frustration to walk around the neighborhood, it's something to try. Gratitude. And then obviously we have communion, right? The establishment of this meal of grace. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples. This is my body. It's broken. It's given. It's poured out. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from the same cup. This is my blood of the covenant. Where does the covenant come from? The very lifeblood of Jesus himself. It's poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it in the new, in the new uh, kingdom of God. Basically, this brokenness and poured out of Jesus' very life is securing a future for us in the kingdom of God that Jesus is saying, I'm making a confident assertion in the deposit carrying us to that moment. 
all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 12 and even before, right? But we pick up with God's covenant with Abraham. God has been insisting from the very beginning that if people fail in their part of the covenant, that he's going to pick it up, that he's going to keep his end of the covenant, end of the covenant all the way back to Abraham and before it was clear that God's keeping of his end and our end of the covenant was going to cost him his life. This is God passing twice through the separated animals as he makes a covenant with Abraham. This is the ram in the thicket in the, in the story with Abraham and Isaac. This is the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost as Israel is being set free from slavery in Egypt. And now the body and blood of Jesus for the redemption of the world. When I sensed God speaking to my heart the other night, as I walked around the neighborhood, I knew it wasn't simply that I just needed to eat this meal, but that I needed to rely again on the sufficiency of Jesus. That even when I don't keep up my end of the deal, that God keeps up both ends of the deal. And, and, and yet, how incredible is it that we have something as substantial, as nourishing, as real, as simple as a meal to communicate that again over and over again to our hearts and to do it in community? Are you wondering how much you are loved? Here is the body and blood of Jesus. Are you wondering how much God is willing to help? Here is the body and blood of Jesus. Are you wondering how all of this is going to end? Here is the body and blood of Jesus. Are you thinking that you have to do it all on your own? Here's the body and blood of Jesus. Are you feeling like a failure? Here's the body and blood of Jesus. My self-sufficiency balks at God's timing, often is frustrated with God's method and how things seem to look in any given moment. But I take comfort that the disciples who would walk with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, are in exactly the same place. They're making big, courageous promises and then immediately falling asleep in his moment of need. It's so clear this thing isn't hinging on us is hinging on Jesus. Peter's in the middle of announcing his self-sufficiency. I will never fall away if everyone else falls away, not me, I'm willing to die. Right, our culture loves that. Those are the things we celebrate. It feels so bold, it shouts independence. I can do it, I don't need anyone else. No matter what, I won't fail, right? We post that on our feeds, we wear that on our shirts, we sing it in our songs, but we can't make it through the night, we keep falling asleep. We keep making the same mistakes every generation. We promise courage, but then we are those who deny by the fire. We go to pray, but then we fall asleep. We're called to lead, but we feel like we're lacking vision. We, we get 12 years in as a church, and yet we're still looking for a place to meet. We want to love well, but we just stormed out of the house in frustration. Where do we go? In those moments, what can we rely on? Take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Gratitude. Remembering to thank God for what he's given. Communion. Remembering to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus and his accomplishment. And then prayer, 
keeping the lines of communication going, not ceasing to name what we really need, where we really are, where we're really beginning or where we're really longing to go. When Jesus is in his most dire moment, what we find him doing is pouring out his soul to the Father. Prayer is not just some religious obligation that we're supposed to do. It's not just something that we might neglect. It is a lifeline for us. It is part of our how we uh, experience our connection with the divine. It's where our soul gropes out for love and finds it. Jesus is in distress. Jesus is feeling unsupported. He's even feeling abandoned. His closest friends are not showing up for him in this moment. It says his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And what does he do? He calls out to the Father. He calls him by the same name he taught us to pray, Abba. He calls out to Abba, Father. He asks, is there any other possible way this could happen? Is there any other different circumstance that I could find myself in the middle of? We see him beginning from where he really is, and then we we actually see over the course of the, 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 those moments of prayer that he's strengthened. How do we know? Because of how he ends. Because he gets up and goes forward into the Father's will. He was praying, is there any other way? Could this cup pass from me? But when the moment comes, he says, enough. Even if all my friends are asleep, I'm going forward with what God has called me to. And he says, rise, my betrayer is at hand. Our call is to watch and pray. Even though we know from from this story, we know from our own experience, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what do we do? We ask for help, and then we just keep going. We ask for help, and with that help, we don't give up. We, we ask for help and, and then we just keep going because our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. We, we want to be something, but we're storming out the door in frustration. We want our church to embody something, but, but here's the real life struggles that we're in the middle of. We, 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 we want our fall to be a particular way, but here's this Delta variant and it's throwing all of our plans you know, uh, uh, up in the air and we have these deep, profound longings of our heart and we're like, why do I feel blocked? Why do I feel stopped? Why isn't this happening? What do we do? Ask for help. And with that help, keep going. I'll give you N.T. Wright one more time. He says, this is a normal part of Christian experience, that we too should be prepared to agonize in prayer as we await our own complete redemption and that of all creation. The church is called to live in the middle of this great scene. Surrounded by confusion, false loyalty, direct attack, and traitor's kisses, those who name the name of Christ must stay in the garden with Him until the Father's will is done. So even if you hear this and you're right away, you're like, oh, I have been neglecting prayer. I'm I'm far away from where I want to be. Instead of beating yourself up for where you've neglected prayer, just begin. Just begin. Just begin right where you really are. Turn whatever emotion you're experiencing, shame or fear or frustration or lust or anger, and turn that into prayer. That's the example Jesus gives us so startlingly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He turns his own fear and trembling into prayer to the Father. He turns his own longing for escape into prayer to the Father. But then ultimately he turns his own willingness to obey into a prayer to the Father, and God strengthens him at each point. We, this is 
astonishing, right? Inside of the, the theology of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we see God the Son praying to God the Father, something that we know ultimately isn't the will of God the Father, and yet Jesus names it as if that's an appropriate part of a prayer life, even for the Son of God, that we can just vent the things that are really in us to God and then get back what we need from God. Is there some other way? And there isn't but he still asks. We just have to ask for help and then keep going. These words come to me and I'm convicted <laughs> that it's so easy for me to go to stress instead of gratitude. It's so easy for me to rely on self-sufficiency instead of resting in what Christ has done. It's, it's so easy <laughs> for me to make prayer basically my last instead of my first option. But Jesus' invitation is here. He's been broken and poured out for us. And his invitation has stood the, the test of time in the most crushing moments. And so I invite you to hear it again this morning, today, whenever you're hearing this. It's an invitation to gratitude, communion, and prayer to name before God the things God has given us, to rest in the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross and the promise that that brings us in his kingdom forever. And then just to keep the communication going, keep naming before God what you really need. Let me pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I ask by the power of your spirit, you would move us today to gratitude, communion, and to prayer, to speaking with you honestly about where we are, God. We rest in all that Jesus has accomplished for us. That is our hope. We pray you would carry us through these moments that we are in. Most of all, God, we ask that you would be with us and you would make us aware that you are with us. God, we are longing for a sense of your presence. Give your church your embrace today. Show us the ways each of us as individuals is meant to respond as your spirit leads. In Jesus' name, amen.